Hebrews. The book of Hebrews as we study together. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, grab it. We are in Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. The plan is to finish Hebrews on Easter morning. The last chapter, if you read it, speaks of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, that's the hope. That's where we're kind of headed. Turn there with me, Hebrews chapter 4. Our sermon, uh, excuse me, the book title, uh, our book series title is Jesus is Better. And our scripture lesson is in chapter 4, and I'm going to read it. It's a difficult passage. I'm going to give you guys a heads up right now. You've got to put your thinking caps on. I, I pray that, that I... I'm able to communicate it clearly um, when we were talking about God's rest, and it's, there's several aspects of it that he speaks about in Hebrews chapter 4. So let me read it to you, the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and we'll jump in. Hear the infallible, authoritative, inspired Word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered the rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said, spoken somewhere on the seventh day in this way, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit, spirit of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Verse 13 to close. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must, we must give account. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. So you could see, you may be thinking, okay. I'm lost right after the second verse. That's okay. I hope to explain it well. Um, remember, the book is written. It's important to remember this, that the book is written to Jewish Christians who are under severe persecution. And the purpose this author is writing this letter to the church is to declare to them the supremacy and superiority and sufficiency of Christ so that they would remain faithful during this hard times, this persecution. And just like today, as it was back then, there were believers that had gathered together, and there were also those who were not trusting in Christ. They were professors of Christ. They professed his name, but they were not possessors of the Holy Spirit. They were not born again of the Spirit. Unbelievers who know the truth who've heard the truth, but never entered into a real relationship with Jesus, never really received Christ. And unfortunately, that happens then and it happens today. We find people who are in church, maybe they're coming around for a little while, maybe you're here, you've been here for a little while, and you know what, you've you've been listening and you're kind of turning and going toward Christ, you're listening, you're hearing, you're walking, but there's a fear that he speaks about. There's a warning. Don't harden your heart. The warning is for all of us that there comes a time and place where you must repent of your sins and trust, really rest on the work of Christ. I've seen it happen so many times in ministry. You start turning from your former way of life, you're walking to Christ, but you never make a real commitment. 
And if that's you here this morning, I'm glad you're here. We're glad you're here. If you've just been tracking with us, not really sure, there's a warning, don't harden your heart, but there's the, the, the word of God speaks about today. We read, we read that in Hebrews. Today is the day of salvation. I, I, we pray that your heart is not hard and that you receive and you understand and you repent and turn from your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. For today is the day of salvation. Look at the book of Hebrews, chapter three, verse seven. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Hebrews chapter three, exhort one another as long as it's called today that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart in the rebellion. Chapter 4, verse 7. Today, I mean, he keeps going over and over. Today, there's an urgency. That's maybe for someone here this morning. That today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you will finally come to the place of resting in the one who gave his life for you, who loves you and died for you and rose for you. Remember, these warnings were for those who being who are being persecuted. Maybe you're not being persecuted, but maybe you're under a lot of pressure from friends, from family. Uh, maybe maybe there's, there's you know, different kinds of pressure that's kind of pulling you away from your journey with Christ. They were going back to Judaism. They were going back to ritualism. They had left Judaism, these Jewish believers, in the rituals of, of, of worship, and they came to the, to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the true knowledge of Christ, that he fulfills all the Old Testament. So these warnings are for those that have not truly made a commitment, but these warnings are also for all people, those who've made commitments to Christ. Remember, we said that warnings in Scripture is one of the ways in which God draws us and keeps us and, and you know, preserves us as we continue to walk forward. The warnings are not for genuine believers who could never lose their salvation, but they're warnings to help us to persevere. And that's what the warnings of Hebrews is about, perseverance. For, for those who, don't, who have never truly trusted Christ to examine their hearts, and for those who truly trusted Christ to examine their hearts, but also to press on, to see the beauty and glory of Christ. That's what Hebrews is all about, the first few chapters, the, 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 the warnings and the wonder, the, the beauty and glory of Christ. That is what he's trying to show us, that he's, Jesus is better than what? Better than the angels. Right, so he's going through this litany of things. He's better than the angels. He's superior to the angels in chapter one and two. And then he goes on to say Jesus is better than Moses. He received more glory than Moses. We picked that up in chapter three. That Moses is a servant over God's house, God's people, but Jesus is a son over God's house. Moses is a servant, excuse me. Moses is a servant in God's house. God's son is over the house, the people of God. And there's a big difference between them. Last week, we were talking about the narrative that this author brought up if you look with me in chapter 3 especially in verse 16 well he he picks up in verse 8 the narrator takes the idea or the reality that Jesus is better than Moses and then tells us that there were people in Moses's day that were under the leadership of Moses as a servant in the house of God that refused to believe the Lord who spoke through Moses and if you look, uh, chapter 3, verse 17. Oh, let's go to chapter 3, verse 9. Verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on a day of testing in the wilderness. There, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the wilderness experience of the Jewish people. Verse 9. Where your father put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Jump down to verse 17 of chapter 3. And with whom was he Provoke, God provoked for 40 years was not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness. And the story of the narrative and all these people that did not believe and never did enter into God's rest. That's, that's where we left off last week. And we said that unbelief, there were people that had left the exodus. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, if you've never heard that before, I'm going, to, I'm going to go there. There are people that have left the uh, exodus, left Egypt, but they disbelieved God while they were wandering in the wilderness, and their disbelief showed itself in grumbling, in quarreling, and rebellion. And because of that, they died in the wilderness. 600,000 men died. Only two people made it to the promised land because of unbelief. Because of unbelief. And if you look in uh, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, through Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, 11 times, it's just it's the way it is, 11 times, through those 311, 411, 11 times, the word rest is mentioned. 
that they did not, God's people did not enter into rest. So that's going to be kind of where we're at, rest. What, what does it mean when we speak about rest? So that's kind of the, the focus of the text. So four things this morning. And we're, going to do, we're not going to go verse by verse, more thematic, but this is where we're going. Number one, we're going to look again at Israel's failed rest. We need to look at that. That's the context of this uh, passage of Scripture. Israel's failed rest. God's Sabbath rest, I think, is the key to this passage. Christ's gospel rest. And then finally, our striving rest. So if you're not you're like, I'm not following all this, hopefully we'll get there, okay? So look with me, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands. Okay, so the first thing we learn about rest is that the promise that God made about his rest still stands. It has not been completely fulfilled, but it has not been revoked either. The promise of entering the rest of God, we'll talk about what that means, is still open and available today. It still stands. Then he says, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Okay, again, verse 1, the first word in verse 1 is therefore. What is therefore, therefore? And he's writing about the exodus, the deliverance of God's people. God's people were in slavery in Egypt under King Pharaoh's tyranny, and it was the work of God alone that delivered God's people. That's the story. That's the narrative. If you look again at chapter 3, verse 19, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 9, it says, your fathers put me to the test as while they were wandering and saw my works for 40 years. In other words, when God's people had been delivered, it was God alone that delivered them. And, and they needed to see that. And they should have saw that. For it was God alone who raised up Moses. God alone sent the plagues upon Egypt. God delivered the people through dry land. If you know the story of the Exodus, as he parted the Red Seas, and as the Egyptian army went through the dry land, he collapsed the water and killed them. It was God who fed them food and water in the wilderness. It was God alone who led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was the God alone that did all those things. And when they finally got to the promised land for the first time, remember what they did? They rebelled. They sent the spies and they said, we're never going to be able to take this place. And it was that disbelief and rebellion that they wandered for 40 years. And only Jacob, excuse me, Joshua and Caleb entered the promised land. Not even Moses. Not even Moses. Moses did not even enter the promised land. And the, 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 the writer is saying, the text says, be afraid. Be afraid of what? Be afraid that our hearts don't turn away from God into disbelief. Be afraid. Be alarmed. There's a possibility that our hearts get cold and turn from the living God, not resting in God. He says, look what he says in verse 1, that they should have failed to reach it. That word reach it comes from the athletics, and it's about finishing. Press on. We've said this before, perseverance is an essential element of the Christian life. Running the race to the end is evidence of our genuine saving faith. While falling away, getting off the path, is the mark of a counterfeit faith. That does not lead to salvation. We're not saying that we are saved by works. We're not saying, hear me clearly, that you have to hold on and do these things and hold on to God and hopefully by the end you'll have have made it to the end. That's not what we're saying. It's not by works, not by holding on. But holding on proves that you've been saved by grace alone. Those who are genuinely belong to Christ will persevere to the end. And one of the ways that we do that is by heeding this warning. And now the author is talking about rest. The rest he's talking about here, and he's using this story of the Old Testament. And he's saying, listen, these people were delivered from Egypt. They were on the way to the promised land. But because of rebellion, they died. They never made it to the promised land, to the land of rest to the land flowing with milk and honey. So he's equating the land of Israel in in this text to rest, okay? 
Because what God had promised that if you, when I send you to this land, you'll have safety, you'll have security, you'll have, you'll have food, I'll provide for you, I'll provide for you, I will fight your enemies for you. That's that kind of worldly or, or rest of the promised land. You following that? So that's what rest means here in this text. Notice what it says. I, 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 we, it's hard. We go right over this text. But notice what it says here in verse 2 again. For good news came to us. No, excuse me, in verse 1. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let us fear. Let us fear. Not let you fear. Let us fear lest any of you, plural, singular, Why is that so important? Because we have to be connected to each other. We we have to be connected to one another so that we can spur one another on. Let us fear that that our hearts don't get cold. Let us fear. Let us spur one another on, he says, we'll say later on, with love and good deeds, maturing, growing, loving, confrontation if necessary. And I know nobody likes to be on the end of loving confrontation, but it is necessary in the body of Christ. Why? Because we're trying to spur one another on to faith, to maturity. Paul says to the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. One commentator said this, we ought to take careful note of members, people in the body of Christ, right here in a local church, who may be drifting from the truth in doctrine or conduct and then pray with them and for them. We are constantly looking for spiritual stragglers, end quote. We're not talking about the sin policeman. Looking and watching at a critical eye, looking around with this giant log sticking out of your eye, trying to get the speck of dust out of somebody else's eye. That's not what he's saying. It's like, look, can I, can I get that dust out of your eye? I'll be careful of the, of the pole sticking out of my face, right? That's not what he's saying. But part of the responsibilities that we have in life together as brothers and sisters in Christ is to exhort one another to faithfulness. We do that when we gather together on Sunday morning. We do that together when we sit under the preaching of God's word. We do it together when we sing together, pray together, meet in community groups together. We gather together to encourage one another to be fully satisfied, to trust and rest in Christ alone. We are, as Sister Sledge said, we are family. (laughs) I got all my sisters and brothers with me, right? And get up, everybody, and sing. Am I showing my age here? What are we doing? Everyone can see we're together. Come on. As we walk on by. Hey. Yeah. Fly like birds of a feather. I won't tell no lie. When struggles and persecution and hardships come in our lives, we, we push one another. We're encouraging and strengthening. Come on. Follow the Lord together. Let us be a church that propels one another. Faithfulness. Faithfulness toward the finish line. Verse 2, good news, he says in verse 2. For good news came to us just as it did them. Good news came to us and to them. That word good news, evangelazo, it means it's the gospel. The gospel came to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? It wasn't united by faith. They didn't believe. They heard the message, but they didn't believe. Many people ask this question. Maybe some of you have heard this question. How did the Old Testament saints... The people in the Old Testament, how did they become right with God? How did they have a relationship with God? How were, were they made right with God? And, and, and the answer is here. It's the same as the New Testament. It's by faith. We just finished Galatians. And Paul makes it very clear that Abraham was saved by what? Faith. Before the law was given. Before circumcision. Chapter 3, verse 16. Just as Abraham believed God, he had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was made right with God by faith, trusting God with his whole heart. It says here the opportunity of entering rest is available today. Why is it still available today as it was then? Because we enter into the rest of God by faith. Whether it was the Old Testament saints who were wandering in the promise, to the promised land, refused to believe. They, if they believed, they trusted, they had faith, they would have entered into the promised land. 
What a difference it might have been if there was a band of people within Israel encouraging one another, strengthening one another, hearing the good news and proclaiming and preaching the gospel to each other in the wilderness. Now, their gospel message would have been a little bit different than ours, but it's still the same. It's the promises of God. They would have said, hey, brothers, hey, sisters, listen, the Lord has done great things. He kept his promise. Here we are. He's provided for us. He has forgiven us of our sins. He delivered us from the tyranny and slavery in Egypt. He provided for everything we need. Let's trust him. Let's keep our eyes on him. Let's believe that he loves and cares for us. That would have been the message. Look at verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, we still get some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, they did not believe. Again, he appoints a certain day, verse 7, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted. What is he saying? He's saying David, years and years after the narrative of the Exodus, Psalm 95, if you've been tracking with us from last week, Psalm 95, used that story of the narrative of the Exodus, of the disobedience of God's people who'd never entered into the promised land's rest, David takes that story in Psalm 95 to speak to his generation. That today's the day, even in David's day, long after the narrative of the Exodus, we can enter into his rest. Do not harden your hearts. So here it is as we end at this first point. Plain and simple. Those who formerly had the good news preached to them regarding the promises of God did not enter the land because of their lack of faith. Their disobedience, their disbelief produced evil, hard-hearted disobedience. And the author is, what he's doing is he is taking Israel's situation in the wilderness of all those people who refused to believe God's promises, who never entered into the promised land, which would be the rest for them at that time. He takes that and he's saying, look, there's an analogy for us today. They had good news preached to them. We have good news preached to us. And we need to understand that nothing can prevent us from the promised rest except distrust, disbelief, and a lack of faith. God's promise, his promised rest, is for you this morning, is for me this morning. Anyone can enter into God's rest by faith. We'll talk more about that. I know right now it's the promised land, but let's look into what it really is. So it is the promised land, but there's more to God's rest. Look at verse three, God's Sabbath rest. For we who had believed entered that rest. As he said, I, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundations of the world. Verse four, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Okay, now what's he talking about? What the author is doing, he's taking the promised land rest, and now he's going back to Genesis one and two. Genesis one and two is where we read about uh, creation by the creator. And we're told in Genesis 1 and 2 that God rested from all his work on the what? Seventh day. Okay? It's not like he got tired. It's not like God's like, that was a long week. I did a lot of work. I'm tired. I'm going to take the seventh day off. That's not what happened, right? He didn't need it hard. He didn't need it like we need it, right? You get a long day, you're like, I am glad it's Friday, right? I can't wait for Saturday. Obviously, the Sabbath day in that day was, was a Saturday, not Sunday, but that's another story. So he doesn't get physically or emotionally weary like we do. End of the day, your like brain is shot. You're like, I just, I just need to, you know, that's it. I, you know, whatever it is. What does it mean God rested? What is the quote here is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. So you need to know that God, this is important. If we want to know what the rest is, when it talks about God resting, it's very important. After God created the world, what did he do? He looked at the world on the sixth day and he said it was very good. God said it was very good. Not like it passed inspection. Like your car that can't pass inspection, you just want it. I hope it passed inspection. It's falling apart if I could just get one more year, right? That's not what it means. It didn't look at the sun and the moon and said, um, looks pretty good. You can go. That's not what it means. 
God creates and says it is good because he's enjoying his creation. Okay? It's like when you cook a really good meatball. It tastes so good. You hear a great song and it brings you to tears, right? You ever hear a song you first hear for the first time? You hear, what a great song. Uh, recently it was uh, Bocelli singing with his son, which just brought me to tears. I won't sing that one for you. God creates the universe for his glory and says, it is good. You are glorious. God rested when he created the world. He was satisfied with what he created. He was satisfied with what he was doing. It was finished. It was good. He was able to stop, lay it down because he was pleased and satisfied for all that he was doing and all that he had done. And that's what rest means. Rest means to truly lay something down. And notice verse 3. Again, you might run right over this. For we who have believed entered that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter what? My rest. My rest. God's rest. God calls the rest being offered my rest because it is the rest he himself eternally enjoys. If you read Genesis and you read about creation... Every day God created, every day, at the end of the day, when he created the creation, it says there was evening and there was morning, first day. Evening, there's morning, second day. And all the way through evening and morning, the sixth day. On the seventh day, it never says that. It doesn't say, and there was evening and there was morning the seventh day. It doesn't say it. God rest begins and continues in creation. God put it all together in six days. I'm a literalist. I I think 24 literal days. If you don't, that's okay. You're wrong, but that's okay. And, And then God rested. And God makes this breathtaking world for man, gives him a wife. Everything is set. They can enjoy their relationship with each other and most importantly with their creator. God is uh, seen walking with Adam. Adam is walking and talking with God. And what is he doing? On the seventh day, he's resting with God because he was in God's rest. There was no fear. There was no shame. There was no anxieties. There was no worries. There was complete freedom as he enjoyed his fellowship with God, the God of rest, living in God's rest. And what was Adam supposed to do to stay in that communion and fellowship in God's rest? What was he supposed to do? He was supposed to trust God. He was supposed to have faith and believe the promises of God. But what did he do? The opposite. Adam became restless because sin entered the world. No longer is he walking around. He's hiding. He's running. He's he's making clothes. He's sneaking around with Eve. He's trying to stay out of the sight of God. You see what happened immediately is unbelief brought the forfeiting of rest. God great rest that he provided for his creation was lost and man was been seeking rest apart from God ever since. Ever since. I mean, think with me for a minute. We have become a culture that is a workaholic culture, right? Because we're trying so hard to achieve something, anything to find rest, an inner sense of it is finished, it is good. I, in the inner sanctum of my soul, I am Okay have a sense of meaning, a belonging. In our culture, there's an, uh, an individualistic culture where our value and identity is something we've got to earn, something we've got to achieve, something we work for, and something that we individually get for ourselves. When you had traditional cultures, maybe shame cultures about family, just what you did with the family and in the family here, it's more of an individualistic culture which is trying to work. Get our value through our work. Get our value and worth by our money, our social class, the things that our job brings us. But in the end, there's restlessness. It's one thing to be physically tired and to rest, to stop your labor. But deep down, all of us realize there's an inner rest. There's an inner rest about who we are as people. And that deep rest, the deep rest that enables you to put down your work and walk away from it, the way you could say, I'm at peace, I'm at rest, it's inner thing. We know it exists. 
We know deep down inside everything is not okay. In the quietness, when no one's around, we're sitting and thinking. We're working, we're working, and we're working, and we're looking and looking and looking to prove our worth, to prove ourselves to ourselves, or prove ourselves to others, or prove ourselves to God if you're religious. There's a cure. But we've got to deal with it first. We've got to deal with the reality that no matter how much time we spend away from our jobs, no matter how much time we spend on our vacation, and we all need to do that, well, I'm for that, there's still the restlessness of our souls because man is trying to find rest in himself, not God's Sabbath rest. Look at verse 5. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my Rest. Again, quoting from Psalm 95. God says, because of unbelief, man can't enter his rest, the rest that can really satisfy. Now, family, God rested on the seventh day from his labors. Satisfied in all that he's done and provided for, everything he's done and provided for us, and it's been going on. Entering God's Sabbath rest is when we are able to put down the things we are chasing the things we are running after to find worth, to get off the treadmill of life, not to be a slave to the materialistic culture, nor a slave to the identity systems that this culture would want us to believe. Rather, you enter God's rest, the freedom in your identity and who you are in God. But how? It's the gospel. Look at me with verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, now the author's bringing in Joshua all of a sudden. Now he mentions, where did Joshua come from? Where, if you remember the Exodus experience that we, the narrative that we read that Moses wrote, and even Psalm 95, years later, David writes Psalm 95. Both of them are talking about these wandering people who never made it to the promised land because of disbelief. Who is the one who brought them really into the promised land? Joshua. It was Joshua. He's the one that led him in. He's the successor of Moses. And what is the author doing? The author is saying, look, Jesus is greater and superior to angels. He is greater and superior to Moses. And he's even greater and superior to Joshua, the one who led the people into the promised land, which we know was not permanent, right? It was permanent rest in, in Canaan, obviously. The people still rebelled when they got there. But there was a sense of rest, but it was short-lived. It was really, you know, a, 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 a time of, of testing again. It is David who wrote Psalm 95 and says, there is another day. So you have the promised land rest. You have the Sabbath rest that we talked about. And then you have this rest that keeps coming back to the one that remains. Family, I'm here to tell you it begins in the rest of the gospel. You see, the rest of the promised land was a picture, was a foreshadow of what was to come. Joshua led them out of Egypt into the land of the promise, but it is Jesus who leads his people into true end times, complete, final rest. We rest from our works and we enter into God's rest when we trust in Christ. That's the message of the gospel. We no longer have to live our lives trying to prove or trying to work our way into our own righteousness. We learn that from Galatians, right? It is the righteousness of Christ. It is his perfect life. He has done all the work for us. And by faith, that righteousness, that work performed righteousness is imputed to us, counted to us by faith in Christ. And, and the book of Hebrew takes this rest reality and says, look, it's not, a, it's, it's not a place in Israel. It's a person. His name is Jesus. In fact, this verse, if you look, verse 8, the word Joshua is the word Jesus. I, I don't want to confuse you, but in the Greek text, which is the, the New Testament written in Greek, it really says in the Greek, for if Jesus had given them rest. 
The translators who take from the Greek to the English put the word Joshua because that's what was meant there. But in the Greek text, Jesus, Joshua is the same. Same with the Hebrew. The name Jesus in the Hebrew is Joshua. So it's kind of a play on words. So this, this son of none, Joshua, led you into the promised land, but there's a son of God, his name is Jesus, who leads you into the promised land of rest, the final rest, the new heavens and a new earth. That's what he's saying here. He's the pioneer. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the ultimate Joshua. When God finished creating the world, the cosmos, listen, he rested. When Christ said it is finished on the cross, he forever rested on his atoning work, his dying for our sins. When we believe we are finished with our works-based righteousness, we enter into the rest of God. Verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There's rest for you. There's rest for you trying to prove your value and worth. There's rest for you trying to make your way back into a right relationship with God. His name is Jesus. And family, that doesn't mean we just kick back and do nothing. That doesn't mean we just kick back and do nothing, nor does it mean that we have rest now in Jesus Christ. We just ignore the principles of a Sabbath rest. No, we need rest. But as faithful people who are resting in the finished work of Christ, we're called in that rest to press on, to live on mission, to work in demonstrating, declaring the gospel, both locally in Albany and globally around the world. And we are also to be reminded that we need to keep trusting God, resting in him, relying upon the gospel as we persevere. Very important you get that right. Remember the, the context. This letter was written to stir their affections for the supremacy, superiority, and sufficiency of Christ so that they would not turn their back on Christ. They would be faithful to Christ and and endure hardship for Christ to grow and not turn back, to grow onto maturity and not to turn because of persecution away from Christ. But they had to learn, we have to learn that there's a rest in Christ now. Our works-based righteousness trying to prove ourselves has been completed on the cross. But verse 11 says there's also a striving. I don't want to lose you. There's a striving to enter into that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. See, listen, uh, catch this now. You've got to catch it before we move on. There is a rest you enter in by faith, resting in Christ. A rest you enter into and lay down your labor. I'm not working for this relationship with you, Lord. You already died in my place. You you performed all the work that needs to be done. Yet there's a rest that we are presently striving for. You understand that? While there's difficulties as the Israelites had, where there are hardships, where there is persecution, we are pressing on in the already rest we have in Christ. We're persevering so that our hearts don't get cold and hard-hearted. We're pressing on, we're relying upon, we're resting in the gospel, and we're pressing on in this life. Does that make sense? That's the striving. We are to strive with hope and confidence of the rest we have now in Christ and the rest we will enter into when we see him face to face. But yet there's a striving in the rest receiving and understanding the benefits of God's saving work by grace alone in Jesus Christ. We're resting on that as we strive forward in this life. Does that make sense? All right, if that makes sense, then we say, how do we do that? What is the important key to resting in Christ, knowing that our righteousness is based upon him, but yet striving forward in that rest in this life with trouble and persecution and hardship and, 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 and doubts? How do we do that? I'm glad you asked. I don't want to lose you. So how do we keep striving into our rest, continue to be in the gospel, resting in the gospel while moving forward with Christ? Especially as pilgrims, right? We face all kinds of hardships. Look at verse 11 again. We have setbacks, difficulties, trials, sickness. How how do we not turn back? How do we strive in our rest? Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For... The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit, 
joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him, it's God, to whom we must give account. Now, if you're anything like me, you're like, what? Where did that come from? Well, it's actually, it's interesting. It's a look back, it's a present look, and it's a look forward. It's a look back. He says, the the word of God, the scripture is what? Alive. It's active. It's not like man's word. It's God's word. It's living, it's effective, and it's self-fulfilling. It diagnoses the conditions of the human heart. In fact, the word active means it speeds to fulfill the purpose for which it has been spoken. Right? If you're thinking of Isaiah 55, 11, that's right. God says, my word goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void, but it will accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Okay, so the word of God is sent and performs and is active and living and does what it was sent to do. Got that? It also says, look what it says. It says it is extremely sharp. It penetrates deep into everything, reveals motives, real motives, real reasons why we do everything. William Lane, he's a, he's a commentator, he's a brilliant New Testament scholar. Very interesting, he says, this is what the writer is doing. The writer is actually looking back at the Old Testament narrative that we've been talking about, the wandering in the desert and not making it to the promised land. He says he's actually used the word sword, looking back to that story. Okay, and then I'll explain to you why. In the Bible, Israel refused to obey God's word. And God tells them in Numbers, not one of them will ever see the land. They're not going in. The people responded, oh no, it's, it's, it's tragic. We made a mistake. Let's take our weapons and enter the land. We are, we are prepared to believe God. And Moses steps in and says, it's too late. He warns them not to go Not to go, don't do this. The Lord is not with you. You'll be defeated, he says, by your enemies. The Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there because you have turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you and you will fall by the sword. They ignored the warning, of course. You know, what else is new? He go up without the ark, without the blessing of Moses, without Moses, without the blessing of God. And what happens? They are dead and killed by the sword. So we see the mention of a sharp double-edged sword in our text is a sober reminder for us to obey and to listen, to respond in faith to the word of God. Don't be like Israel who fell by the sword. You got that? The sword of God reminds us of the past, but it cuts deep now in the present. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and attentions of the heart. Look down at verse 13. What does it do? What, What does it accomplish? Naked before God. No creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked before God. Stripped before God. Everything has been uncovered. Laid bare, metaphorically, your heart, your soul, your motives, and everything is stripped naked before God. That's a scary thought. I don't know about you, but I don't even like to look in my own intentions of my own heart is scary enough. God Almighty, by his word, opens me up and sees the exact intentions and motives of my heart. That's scary. But that's how you begin to enter the rest of God, isn't it? You you will never get into deep rest until you come to grips that we are spiritually naked before God. That only the word of God can do. Remember Genesis 3. What happened when sin entered the world? Before sin, they were naked and unashamed. But what happened? They, they, they sinned, and now they're no longer satisfied. Enter, they're no longer in God's rest. They start to do what? They start running around, and they start being their own lords and saviors. They start doing their own thing. They're the fig tree. They're hiding, and they're experiencing this unrestfulness in their lives. They're, they're inadequacy. They cover themselves up. That's works-based righteousness. And until you recognize that your righteousness is covered by God himself, you'll work. You'll do everything you can to try to cover yourself. Now, in a movie, many, many of you saw this movie called The Chariots of Fire. In this movie, Chariots of Fire, there was Harold Abram, 
uh, and there was a Christian's name was Eric Little, if you know the story. They're both trying to win the goal 1924. But one of the things that was interesting is that Harold Little, before he would race, there was a quote, he says, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. 10 seconds in this race to justify my existence. But it was Eric Little who turned to his sister and said, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Do you see the difference? One was... (laughs) Harold Abram was weary even when he rested, and Eric Little was rested even when he exerted himself. Why? Because those who are outside the rest of God try to prove themselves, to convince themselves. When we lay bare before God, that hopefully drives us to God, drives us to the righteousness of Christ. Now watch this. It says that he was naked, and look at the other word, exposed. Chapter uh, 4, verse 13. Naked and exposed. Very, very interesting. The word exposed means to hold your neck back. It it was used of wrestlers. It was used of, of people who would kill people and cut their throat. You would lean the head back and you would slit their throat. That's what it means to be exposed, to have your head lifted back. You know what it was else used for? The sacrifice. The sacrifice in the temple. They would take the animal, lean his head back, and they would slit the throat. The Bible says that God gave us the blood for atonement for sins. And these sacrifices that were in the temple day after day, year after year, were given so that we can atone for sins. Leviticus 17, 11. And if you really understood, look at, look at your text again. If you really understood verse 12 and 13, you would recognize that all of us have been laid bare before God, exposed, and we deserve the knife. That's the point. We, we deserve death. We deserve what that animal got is what we get. That's why the animal was sacrificed in our place. So verse 12 and 13 says, listen, you are bare before God. You are exposed. Your neck, you deserve to be sacrificed. But now look. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Why is 14 there? It's because we deserve the sword, we deserve death, but Jesus is our high priest who not only sacrificed the offering for the people as a mediator, but he was to sacrifice himself. We're not going to be the sacrifice because he, as the high priest and the sacrifice, dies in our place. How do we strive in gospel rest? Look to Jesus, who who radically was stripped naked on the cross. They cast his lots They cast lots for his garments. He was stripped naked so that we can be clothed with his righteousness. Jesus experienced restlessness on the cross and cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus was cut off from the land of the living so that we could have rest. He was the sacrifice so we won't be sacrificed. He was cut off so we could be brought in. He was stripped naked so that we can be clothed. He died and said it is finished the work every human heart is trying to do the self-justifying work is also finished how do we strive as pilgrims with hardships and difficulties sickness trials and persecution listen by being absolutely sure about who you are in christ that you're loved accepted and treasured by the only set of eyes in the universe that really matter And to whom you will give an account. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. He didn't say go work for it. Work real hard and find rest. He said, come to me and I will what? Give you rest. Come to him by faith to find the rest that your soul longs for. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we are forgiven, clothed in righteousness. And it's the same grace through faith alone and Christ alone that we strive through this life as we keep our eyes on Jesus, looking to him, looking to the cross, looking to his beauty and incalculable worth, all that he is and all that he has done. That'll help us in the race. That will keep our eyes on Jesus. And that's what the communion table should remind us about our rest in Christ. Rest now in his perfect life, his atoning death is our only rest. 
It's reminding us every time we gather together in communion that we're resting in his rest as we strive in this life. Not to gain salvation, but because of our salvation, we are keeping our eyes upon Jesus. This table is for you. Jesus invites you if you're resting in Christ. May the bread represent his broken body, the cup of juice represent his shed blood. May it be to you and to me a reminder of his love so that we may strive by faith until the day we will reach Revelation 14, 13 becomes a reality. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. What are you resting in in the quietness of your life? What are you relying upon when no one else is around? Your own works, your own salvation, being your own Lord and Savior, or in the end of the day, you're resting in the work of Christ. Today is the day of salvation. If you have never trusted Christ, today is the day. You will not in any way find rest outside of Christ. You'll always be working. Rest in him. Rest in him. Confess your sins. He already knows the thoughts and intentions of your heart. He's already opened us up to the reality that we are sinners. But he invites us to come to the person and work of Jesus. Who died for sinners like you and like me. Who went to the cross, was stripped naked so that we can be clothed. Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ today? The band's going to play. We're going to confess our sins. If you're a follower of Christ, come to the table. If you're not, don't. This table is for believers. We love you. We're glad you're here. You can come and talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. I'll be right up front. But the band's going to play. We as a church are going to confess our sins, and then we're going to celebrate the forgiveness that God has offered. We're going to come down the center aisle. Everybody down the center and go this way. Let's pray together. Father, we need you. We, we are a people who are wandering around looking for rest to the place of saying, I'm okay today, and we know we're not. But it is in Christ alone, his finished work, this perfect obedience, his righteousness given to us by faith that we can rest in you, the one we are accountable to, but the one who will look upon us through the blood shed cross and say, you're mine. You belong to me. You're my treasure. I will provide. I will care. I will forgive. I will embrace you into my rest. Father, please help us to understand that today. Maybe there's someone here who's never done that. Today's the day of their rest. That they'd rest from their work and trust in Christ in his finished work. Believing he died, believing he rose. Help us, Lord, we pray as we continue to worship. In Jesus' name, amen.